Well, as Pastor Nick said, this really is the most glorious morning, isn't it? As we celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm so thankful to be able to do that one more day with you. We know that the resurrection, Christ resurrecting from the dead, it really is the the greatest event in human history. It is the greatest miracle. It is the greatest demonstration of power. And it also provides us with the greatest salvation. And it's because of the resurrection that you and I, we have the greatest assurance. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest news in all of the universe. But not everyone believes that. Not everyone believes what the Bible says about the risen Lord. Several years ago, there was a frontline series on PBS called From Jesus to Christ. And it was advertised as an intellectual and visual guide which challenges familiar assumptions about the life of Jesus. That's just a shorthand way of saying we don't believe the Bible and don't think it's authoritative. But there was this scholar that was featured, an expert, and to add to his clout, he studied at Brown University. He's a professor of Judaic studies, but this is what he said. My own approach is to say that while we cannot possibly know the historicity of any single incident related in the Gospels, we can't possibly know the authenticity of any single saying attributed to Jesus, We can't possibly identify the truth of any given verse in the Gospels. He said, but nevertheless, certain large patterns do emerge, and those patterns seem likely to be true. He goes on to say the core, the core of the Gospel of Jesus is that he's a miracle worker. Jesus is a man who made a deep impression upon those who came in contact with. He had an ability to attract large crowds, his ability to attract dedicated core groups of followers, and a large group, they saw him as somebody special. This man clearly made a mark. He left an impression, somebody you didn't forget, somebody who had power in a social sense, someone who was able to attract and enchant and hold a large group of followers. He was a holy man. He was a miracle man. He was a free-spirited individual. And in the final analysis, this is what did him in. So my question to him is, is that all he is? Is he just a miracle man? A free-spirited man? A man who may or may not have claimed to be God? A man who talked about being raised from the dead and having the power to raise others from the dead, but... I don't know if that part is true. It's likely true, maybe true. Look, for the Christian, one of the most glorious realities of Christ's resurrection is the promise that when you die and you are in Christ, you too will be resurrected to eternal life. We're not banking our future hope on a maybe or what might likely be true. 
Listen, if you are a Christian here this morning, the Bible says very clearly, if you've put your faith in Christ, you have been justified because of the resurrection. Romans 4.25 says this, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Because of the resurrection, Jesus has given you new life. Romans 8.11 says this, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Holy Spirit who dwells in you. The Bible's promise to you is that if you have put your faith in Christ, you have salvation. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it's not just that. If you've put your faith in Christ this morning, the promise to you is that you too will be resurrected. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 14 says this, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up in his power. You can't get away from it. These are ironclad promises from the Lord Jesus himself that one day we too will be raised. What I want to do this morning is take us to a passage that might be a little unfamiliar when you think about resurrection passages, but it's found in John chapter 6. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And as we're turning there, you have there in your notes, and you'll see it up here on the screen, our main idea for this morning in John 6 is Jesus revealing his true identity. He not only reveals his true identity, but he makes promises to raise up all those who hunger and thirst for him. John 6, Jesus reveals his true identity, and he promises to raise up all those who hunger and and thirst for him. Look, because Jesus rose from the dead, he is able to give you what your heart desires the most, which is himself. If you're a Christian, even if you're a non-Christian here this morning, the Lord wants you to know that he came 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that he didn't deserve. He rose victoriously from the grave and all of that so that you would be satisfied in him now and forevermore. So this morning, we're just going to ask three simple questions and we're going to answer them hopefully from this text. But here are the questions, just three of them. Who is Jesus? How do we come to Jesus? And why should we come to Jesus? Who is Jesus? How do we come to Jesus? And why should we come to to Jesus. Now let me just set the stage here because we're transporting ourselves, parachuting into John chapter 6. The Gospel of John is very unique. And one of the things that sticks out about John's Gospel compared to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that there's long discourses. Many of Jesus' teachings and miracles are recorded in multiple Gospels. But listen, there's only two miracles. Two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. One of them is the feeding of the 5,000, and the other is the resurrection. 
And what we learn as we read through the life of Christ, through the synoptics, is that this miraculous feeding, it serves as a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, his ministry is largely public. He's in Galilee, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's with the people. But at this particular point of the Bread of Life discourse, things change. And that public ministry now becomes more of a private ministry to his disciples. News has just reached Jesus' ears. He's learned that his cousin John, John the Baptist, was beheaded by Herod Antipas. And when he learns of this, as you can imagine, love John, his cousin, the forerunner. Jesus is sad. And so what he does is he withdraws and he goes up to the mountain and he focuses attention on his men. But that didn't stop the crowds from following him. And so we begin John chapter 6 and verse 1 with these words. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now a large crowd was following him because they were seeing the signs that he was doing on all those who were sick. Now what's interesting about the timing and the miracle here and Christ's teaching here in John chapter 6 is that this takes place at Passover. Look there at verse 4. The Jews are traveling all over the known world to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which means that their thoughts are on slavery and deliverance and redemption and unleavened bread and lambs that were sacrificed and blood being spilled. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus' proclamation that he is the bread of life comes on the brink of the celebration of this meal. You see, God intends for their minds to hearken back to Israel's exodus from Egypt, to the wilderness wanderings, to God's salvation, to his gracious provision. This whole setup is sounding the siren and flashing the lights. This Jesus is what the Passover was pointing to. So with some of that background, let's look more closely at the narrative now. Look at verse 5. It says this, Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where do we buy bread so that these people may eat? Multitudes are gathered. This is huge. We're told that there are 5,000 men. Matthew says, not including women and children. So we're talking 15, 20, maybe 25,000 people. That's a church service right there. But listen, they're all tired. They're hungry. There's no Chick-fil-A. There's no in and out. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to cut his sermon short, dismiss them, and say, go get some food? That's what the disciples suggested. In Mark's gospel, we read this in Mark 6, 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Listen, Jesus, he has a much better plan. And it begins with a test for his disciples. Look there, verse 6. Jesus was testing Philip. For he himself, the scripture says, knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Philip says, 
Look, practically speaking, Lord, it's going to take more than a half of year's wages to buy enough bread for all these people. And even if we had that kind of dough, there's no Costco. We can't go. We can't go get food for everybody. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here. And this boy has five barley loaves and two fish. But what is that for so many people? Andrew wasn't quite sure how that was going to work, but like he does in other Gospels, he usually brings people to Jesus. He brings the only guy who actually packed the lunch, and he's only got two little fish and five barley cakes. I don't know how far this will go, but here's something, Lord. What does Jesus do? Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves. Having given thanks, he distributed them so that they were seated. Likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted, and they were filled. He said to his disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, filled the 12 baskets with pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And here's our first question. Who is this guy? Who, who is this? Is he merely a miracle worker? You know, throughout the Gospels, Jesus performs many miracles. Scholars put the miracle range in between 37 and 45, but the truth is we don't know the exact number. You say, Dom, why don't we know the exact number? Because multiple times, actually in all four Gospels, it says he healed many. How much is many? I don't know. Sounds like many. Jesus is constantly healing, and each one of those miracles is a miracle in and of itself, individually. So we don't know the exact number. Now, John, he records eight specific miracles in his gospel, and all of them, all of them are intended to point to one truth. Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He's not just a miracle worker. He's much more than that. When we think about Jesus, it's so easy for us to consider, well, he's doing all these miraculous things. That's what he came to do, to show himself to be the one who can transform nature and perform miracles. But he's so much more. John 8, even though it records those eight miracles, we have to keep in mind what John says in John, John chapter 20. It says this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, listen to this, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So let me ask you again, is he merely a miracle worker or is he something greater well, apparently the crowds picked up on the fact that he might be something greater because look at what they say in verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, this is truly the prophet that has come into the world. And so now the question is, is he the prophets? See, seeing the sign tipped them off to an Old Testament prophecy that they had probably heard thousands and thousands of times growing up. And that prophecy is from Deuteronomy chapter 18, which reads this, 
I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Now here's the problem. The problem is they didn't like what this prophet had to say. The fulfillment of the prophecy was right in front of their eyes. He is the prophet. He is standing in front of them. But they didn't like his message. I mean, you would think, you would think they'd be all ears. If you were there and you saw what you just read about, wouldn't you be all ears? I mean, Jesus just superseded the law of conservation of matter. Where we're studying science with our kids, and I'm getting this refreshment. What are these universal laws of physics? You can't create something out of nothing. And yet, Jesus does. Listen, he's the creator of the universe. If he created the cosmos, he's not going to have a problem making some lunch. And what's significant here is they're thinking about Moses, but Jesus isn't waving a staff around. He's not waiting on his brother Aaron to communicate a message. Jesus, by his own authoritative word, is creating something out of nothing. The crowd picks up on the power, but they don't make the connection that this is the prophet with a capital P. So we'll give one point to the crowd for identifying this is the prophet, but minus 10 points because they didn't listen to him. You say, well, he didn't. He revealed himself as the prophet. They failed the prophet test. Maybe they got the king test correctly. Look at verse 15. It says, so Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And the question is, is this the king? Is this the Messiah, the Mashiach? And this actually looks promising, right? They're identifying him as the king. And now they want to crown him. So why does the text say that Jesus withdrew from them? I think the answer is simple. They wanted the wrong kind of king. They wanted the king of their own liking. First of all, listen, you don't make Jesus the king. He already is the king. A thousand years ago, the people cried out, we want a king like unto the nations. Give us a king, a human king. Well, here he is. You have a human king and a divine king, but they don't want that kind of spiritual leadership. They're looking for something else. They didn't want the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. And so Jesus is not having any of that. No, no, you want a Messiah of your own making. What happened was they failed to see their greatest need was not food. Their greatest need was not a foe like Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Rome. They're still thinking worldly, nationalistic, political. Give us a, a military leader who can lead us out of bondage from the oppression of the Romans. But what they needed most of all was a king who would rescue them from their sin. They needed a righteous king, one who would rule an eternal kingdom and deliver them from the bondage of Satan. 
Look, there are a lot of people that are jam-packed into churches this morning, and they're perfectly fine with a Jesus who just heals, a Jesus who just provides. That Jesus is very, very easy to preach, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus didn't merely come here to put a Band-Aid on our temporal problems. He came to rescue his people from their sin. He came to restore his creation. The Bible tells us that he is the eternal king. It is a front to him to come to him like he's some sort of ATM machine. Just give me, give me, give me. Give me, give me, give me. Jesus exists to bail me out of my trouble and to simply satisfy my material earthly desires. If you have that Jesus, it is the wrong Jesus. Jesus is much more than that. He's not just a miracle worker. He's greater than any other prophet, and he's far greater than a mere mortal king. And John makes this explicit by including this miracle within miracles. And it's right there in verse 16. Look at that with me. We read this, now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they began to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea was stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, they said, or they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. You see, the crowds, they're confused about Jesus's identity. And Jesus didn't want his men to get caught up in the hoopla. And so as a way to protect them, he sends them across the sea. They want to crown him prematurely. This is a perversion, making him king. So he sends them away. He dismisses the crowd. He prays. And then he takes a casual stroll on the water. He's going to help his disciples understand what the crowds were missing. Now, John, he doesn't give us all the details that we see in the other accounts. Matthew tells us that Peter also walked on the water Then he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank in. Mark tells us that they're frantically swimming against the waves. And Jesus, intending to just pass by them, is walking by. All of the accounts say that these men were absolutely terrified. And how does Jesus respond to them? Look at verse 20. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, the English just does not do it justice. Why? Because the Greek construction here, Jesus makes it so much more clear. Jesus says, ego, me." That, that Greek word ego means I am. It's where we get our word ego from. But the interesting thing is that the word me" also means I am. So what Jesus literally says is, I am, I am. It goes back to the Lord revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. yod Hey vav Hey Yahweh, I am that I am. That is what Jesus says right here to the disciples. 
And what does he do? He gets in the boat. The wind dies down immediately. And they arrive at land. It's not just a popular guy. It's not just a miracle worker. He's not just someone who is attractive socially. That's God in the boat. And you say, well, what's, what's the point of this story that's sandwiched between the feeding of the 5,000 and the bread of life discourse? Jesus is God. That is what he's communicating to his disciples. But it's not until Jesus returns to the land and he makes his divinity clear to everyone. And he does that by launching into this bread of life discourse. Seven times in this passage, there's this very curious phrase that Jesus uses, and it's coming down, coming down. Look there with me at verse 33. John 6, 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Look at verse 50. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 51, I am the bread, the living bread, that came down from heaven. 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus is making it very clear. Where did he come from? From heaven. Charles Spurgeon says, Oh, think that he who was master of all of heaven's majesty came down to be a victim of all man's misery. He came down, listen to this, to give us life in order that we might have life and not just life, but have it more abundantly. Jesus says, I am the spiritual bread. I am the food that you're actually looking for. I am the food that does not perish. When you eat regular food, guess what happens two hours later? Well, at least for me. I get hungry again. I need more. Food might satisfy for a moment. You might spend a lot of money on really good food, but you're going to want more food Jesus says, I've come down to satisfy your deepest hungers. Those who ate the manna that God sent from heaven, they all still die. Look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But listen, if you partake of me, if you taste and see that I am good, I will satisfy your hunger. You will live forever. He's saying, I am to your spirits what bread is to you physically. He is the foundation. He is the sustenance for our spiritual life. And listen, without him, there is no life. So if Jesus, if he's the true miracle worker, and if he's the prophet, and if he's the king, and if he's the bread of life, and if he's God, what are we supposed to do with him? Here's the second question. How do we come to this Jesus? 
You know, one of the most fascinating details throughout the narrative is that the people are actually said to be seeking him. Look there at verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did you come from? Look, the crowd, it's, they're, they're participating in an all-night vigil. They're watching all throughout the nights, trying to figure out when Jesus might appear again. And when it's obvious that he's not coming back, they go get him. So they call, the, like the boat Uber. Boats come. They all get in the boat. They all start rowing. You can just imagine the sea is just full of boats of people. Where is Jesus at? Everyone is coming to find Jesus. And when they find him, they're perplexed. And they ask the question. It's right there. How did you get here? I walked. He could have said that. I'm God. He could have said that. But he doesn't say those things. What does he say? Look at verse 26. He doesn't even answer their question. He just ignores them. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. They were not looking for him because of the miracle. They were just looking for another meal. One author said, they were moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. And so Jesus responds to them rather harshly. And some people, they read this and say, why, why is he being so rude? I mean, after all, they are seeking him. They're coming to Jesus. They're showing up to church. Why, why is he acting like this? Doesn't he want people to follow after him? Isn't this his whole purpose, to, to collect disciples and, and to get people to follow him? So why is he being so critical? Why is he being so confrontational? Well, listen, because although it might seem good, sound good on the surface, that they're seeking him, Jesus knows the very motive of their hearts. They weren't following after him because they wanted him. They wanted his gifts. They didn't want the gift giver. But what can you give me? What can you give me? There are so many people that are gathered today dressed up real nice and they're hearing prosperity preachers talk about Jesus just wants you to be happy in this earth and he wants to add to you and bless you and give you bigger homes, better relationships, bigger houses. Jesus is not a Santa Claus. He's not a genie. And if we are more interested in his product rather than his person, we need to repent. The greatest thing that Jesus can give you is himself. So when we come to him, our desire should be him. He's the one that satisfies our cravings. You know, the Roman poet and satirist Juvenal wrote this. He said that Romans longed eagerly for just two things. You know what they wanted? They wanted bread and circuses. That's what he said. 
And that characterizes this Jewish crowd, and truthfully, that characterizes our American culture. We want entertainment. We want to see the sensational, and oftentimes, we just want a free meal. I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but early on in our wedding, Jess and I, can't tell you how many times we did this, but we went to timeshare presentations, and we sat for hours listening to these things, because I said, babe, we get a free steak dinner. We, we can sit here for a couple hours. We, we get a free steak dinner. People will do just about anything for food. Back in 2018, there was a Domino's pizza in Russia that advertised a promotion that promised that its customers, get this, Kyla Boo, the customers would get a lifetime supply of pizza if they got the Domino's tattooed somewhere on their body. And so what Domino's had to do was they had to retract that because hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people showed up with their new Domino's ink. Where's my free pizza? For a lifetime. Listen, people come to church. They read their Bible. They come to Jesus because they think that by coming to Jesus that he is just going to satisfy their earthly desires. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. Why do you follow Jesus? Make it personal. Why do you come to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Are you like these crowds that are hunting for happiness merely in the temporal things of life? Are you storing up for yourself treasures here on earth rather than in heaven where Jesus says moth and rust are going to destroy, thieves can break in and steal. Are you putting all your chips in this basket? Are you seeking the gift rather than the gift giver? Listen, if we're going to come to Christ, it has to be on the basis of one thing and one thing only. It's because we want Him. We want Him. So look at what Jesus does here in verse 27. He cautions them. And he tells them this is a loving, gracious thing to say. Do not work for the food which perishes. Yes, watch your motives, but also watch your works. If you take time to read the narrative carefully, you're going to see that these followers were working extremely hard. They're, they're hiking up mountains. They're, they're jumping into boats. They're taking detours on the way down the Passover meal, they're running across the land to see Jesus, all of them are working hard. There's no one in here who is lazy. They're strategizing, they're prioritizing, they're showing up at all the Jesus events. But the problem is that they're seeking after that which does not last. So Jesus, he says, look, I know your heart, I know your motive, I know you're working hard, and I am going to call you to something so much greater Work for the food that endures to eternal life. And that should have been, amen. Jesus, I want you. But what's their response? Look at it in verse 28. Therefore, they said to him, well, what shall we do to works the works of God? In asking that question, it's revealing 
they still don't understand the spiritual truth that Jesus is teaching. They're asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What human endeavor can I pursue? What hoop do I have to jump through? Do I have to pray more? Do I have to serve more? Do I have to give more? What do I have to do, Jesus? How can I expend myself to be acceptable in your eyes? You know, the rich young ruler came and asked the same thing. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Give me the checklist so I can start checking them off. What is it? What work can I do to get into heaven? But practically speaking, do you know what they're saying? They're saying, how can I manipulate God to give me what I want? So Jesus, he makes it really nice and easy for them. What does he say? The work of God is believe. That's the work of God. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And that work is in the singular not works, not checklist. God's not looking for workers. He's looking for believers. Let me ask you this question real quickly. Are you saved by works, yes or no? Are you saved by works, yes or no? We are absolutely saved by works. We are saved by Jesus' perfect works. It is our faith in his works that saves us. This is what Jesus is doing. You're thinking works. You're thinking checklist. You know what you need? You need me. You need me. Believe in me. Hope in me. Trust in me. And look at his promise in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about obtaining eternal satisfaction based on the belief that his body would be offered up on a cross. But then he would be resurrected Resurrected to new life and able to have the authority to give life. You see, when we embrace his sacrificial death on our behalf, and when we trust in his perfect works to save us, he gives us eternal life. Look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Again, he's not talking literally here. He's simply saying that we must come to him. Come to him. 
That's so important that it's repeated over and over again in this discourse. It's there in verse 35 and 37 and 44 and 45 and 65. And you say, well, what does that mean to come to him? It means this, believe, believe. Look at John 6, 29. Just just so you're clear, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John 6, 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. You see, for Jesus, eating is believing. Drinking is believing. And he promises life to all those who believe. Believe. Say, believe what again? Believe. Believe in his death. Believe that his body was broken. Believe that his blood was spilled. Believe that he didn't deserve that. Believe that you deserve that. Believe that your only hope to have a relationship with God is Christ, his sacrifice, his substitutionary atonements. Believe. You see, coming to Christ, it implies two things. You know this, right? It's the coming to Jesus and coming all the way to him, but it's also the leaving behind of that former life, the former pride, the former loves. It's an action. So when I say believe, don't just say, yeah, I believe that. Does that belief lead to works? What we're doing is we're saying yes to Jesus and no to the world. We're we're, we're coming away from emptiness to his fullness. We're coming away from just the temporal to the eternal. We're coming away from the earthly to the heavenly. There's so many people who say, I believe, I know this, I grew up on this, I went to church, I've read the Bible, I've heard the preaching, I know this. When Jesus makes this claim that he is the bread of life, you know that this is the first of the seven I am statements in John's gospel. All seven statements reveal that Jesus is the all-satisfying treasure that he truly is. But I want you to listen to something. You can know that he's the bread of life, that he's the source of life, and never truly partake of him. You can know that he's the light of the world, but never let his spiritual truth enlighten your hearts. You can know that he's the gate to the sheep and never enter in. You can know that he's the good shepherd, but you just totally disregard his feeding, his protection, his leading You can celebrate today on Easter and say, Jesus is the resurrection, the life, and you can still be dead in your sins. You can say, oh yeah, the way, the truth, the life, I've got that one down. I memorized that in Awana. The way, the truth, the life, but you can never follow the path. You can say, he is the vine, but never abide in him. Never come to him as your spiritual life. Listen, if you're here today, Jesus doesn't want that to be you. 
He's calling. He's beckoning. He's pleading. Come to me. Let me satisfy you. Don't be like this crowd. This crowd is hard-hearted. Look there what it says in verse 30. Still not believing. Instead, they want signs. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Because our fathers, they ate the man in the wilderness. And as it is written, they gave, he gave them bread from heaven. Miracle mongers is what they are. More signs, more signs. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. You want a sign from heaven? I am the sign. I am the sign. I have come down from heaven. You want manna? I am the bread of life. That's what Jesus is saying. You want more proof? Listen, the resurrection, it's not going to get any better than that. You see, the problem is not a problem of evidence. The problem is not that there was not enough miracles. The problem is that they thought the miracles would satisfy them. And oftentimes, the miracles, the food, it does not, it cannot fully satisfy. Why? Because you were created to be satisfied in him and him alone. Jesus said in John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Who is this Jesus? Is he a miracle worker? Is he a prophet? The Messiah King? The manna that came down from heaven, the bread of life. Oh, he's all that and so much more. He is the Son of God, God incarnate. How are we to come to him? Very simply, through faith, through belief. This is eternal life, that you believe in him. Now let's answer the last question. That last question is basically this, so what? So what? What do we do with all this? Well, why should we turn to embrace Jesus by faith. Because you were created to be satisfied and nothing else will. Knowing Jesus guarantees you three things. Salvation, satisfaction, and security. We've talked about salvation, but let me just remind you real quickly of God's promise to satisfy you. Augustine wrote in his confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds rest in you. Every single one of us here this morning, every single human heart is a restless heart that can never be satisfied until it finds its rest in Christ. The Lord created us this way. He's hardwired us for this very thing. All of us have an inner craving, a craving that can never be met by temporal things. For those of you that remember what life was like before Christ, you tell me, were you satisfied? Did the world please you? Was it lasting? We were constantly chasing after pleasure, chasing after pleasure in people, chasing, chasing pleasure after things and places. 
We wanted to be satisfied, and we were looking for it in all the wrong places. And it starts when you're young, with your toys, and with your video games, and getting good grades, and your little badge, and your ribbon, and your athletic accomplishments. You want to be satisfied. And then it comes to the point where you want independence, and you want a car, and you want a boyfriend, and a girlfriend, and maybe you want a job, and now you want some money, and these things are going to satisfy me. And you find out, no, they actually don't. And then you get older, and more mature, and more wise, or at least you think you do. And so you say, oh, then I'll get married, and then I'll have kids, and then I'll have multiple kids kids and get a house and get a bigger house and get a retirement that I can enjoy life and I will finally be satisfied. And you realize it doesn't satisfy. It actually just leaves me empty if Christ is not in the picture. You see, the world lied to us. The trivial pursuit of pleasure only brought about pain and disappointment and more empty longings. Our hearts long for lasting permanent, eternal nourishment, joy, and satisfaction. And when Jesus came, he said, I'll be that for you. Feast on me. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 107.9 says this, For he has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Psalm 16.11, You will make me know the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Those of you that know Jesus this morning know exactly what it's like to have peace and joy and contentment and true harmony and happiness because you have him. Listen, you have a God who knows you, who loves you, who's always been about providing for his own, always been about loving and caring for you, and you say, well, this sounds like really good spiritually, but what about physically? He provides for you physically. He always has. The children of Israel were hungry, so what did God do? He fed them. The, the people here on the mountain, they're hungry. What does God do? He feeds them. You know why? Look at the birds of the air. They don't know how to sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they did you notice that in the count as we read through it that Jesus provides in abundance? He says, eat and eat some more and enjoy. He doesn't say just a little bit, just a little bit. too much right there. They eat till they're full and they have 12 baskets left over. And it's a reminder to the disciples and to us, God will provide for our needs. He'll give us whatever we need to glorify him. There's another reason why God provides for our physical needs, and it's this, and maybe you just need to hear this this morning. He does it because he loves you. Do you understand that? The four gospel writers tell us Jesus performed this miracle, but only Mark tells us why he did it. You want to know why he did it? Mark 6, 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw the large crowd, and it says there, he felt compassion. He felt compassion because they were like a sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Look, here's the truth that maybe you need to hear this morning. God loves you and he promises to provide for you. 
if you rewind all the way back, go from the mountain, go all the way to the wilderness, go all the way back to the tree in the garden. God said, enjoy, Adam and Eve. I'm a good God. I give good things. I want you to enjoy. Enjoy. Have your fool. But do not partake of this one thing. And you know the story. Satan perverts it. Eve falls into temptation. Adam does as well. And it's the same story over and over again. We fall right in line with our ancestors where we say, I think I know a better way. God has given me something great and glorious and good, but I think I want to go a different direction because I know what's best to make me happy. And God says, no, that will never satisfy you. It'll never make you happy. So then you fast forward. You fast forward through the tree, all the way to the wilderness, all the way to the feeding of the 5,000, and all of those things were the promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3, that he would send his son, that he would crush the head of the serpent, and that he would be the all-satisfying bread, the one that came from heaven to satisfy our souls. This is why you exist, to know him, to partake of him, to enjoy him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. And you go and you do a study on righteousness. Try to figure out what that means. Here's the short version. You know what righteousness is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Hunger and thirst for Christ. And he will satisfy you. Righteousness is not a to-do list. It is a relationship. It is a union with a living God. So he saves, he sanctifies, but lastly, listen to this, he also secures us. And this is why I decided to preach on this today. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This message is so urgent, and it comes with the strongest language that Jesus repeats it over and over and over again. When it says you will never hunger again, never thirst again, you will never be cast out again, he's using a double negative, never ever thirst, never ever hunger, you will never ever be cast out. Why? Because your future hope, if you are in Christ, is secure. If you believe that a Christian can lose their salvation, you have a major issue with Jesus, not with Calvinism, not with Reformed theology, you have a major issue with Jesus. Because what you're saying is, not so much can a Christian lose his salvation, you're saying can Jesus lose someone that he's saved? And the answer to that is absolutely not. The truth is that if you're saved, Jesus promises you today he's going to raise you up. 
So if you go home and have a big burrito like I will have and maybe have a heart attack, <laughs> Jesus is going to raise me up. It's a guarantee. Look at John 6.39. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I will raise him up on the last day. Look at John 6.40. I myself will raise him up on the last day. Look at 6.44. I will raise him up on the last day. Look at John 6.54. I will raise him up on the last day. The thing that Jesus wants you to identify, it is him. It is him. See, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. They didn't believe. They didn't understand Jesus would be the one doing the resurrecting. You remember that exchange between Martha and Jesus. Jesus, if you would have just been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But Jesus, I believe that Lazarus will be raised up on the last day. You know what she doesn't say? I believe that you will raise him up on the last day. And so what does Jesus tell her? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he will live if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? That is what he tells her. You will never die. I want to close our time with a hymn. The hymn is called, All My Life Long I Had Panted. All my life long I had panted for a drink from some, some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Hallelujah, I found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings through his life. I now am saved. Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches something that would satisfy, but the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Well of water, ever springing, bread of life, so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Listen, if you came this morning, I'm so glad that you're here. The Lord wants you to know that he is the bread of life. If you are a non-Christian, you have not embraced Christ by faith, what are you waiting for? More evidence? More signs? More miracles? You remember that story that's told, Lazarus and the rich man? If you just go back and tell him and warn him, just, just, just go and tell him, even if someone raises from the dead, they will not believe. You have everything you need to have a relationship with the Son of God, the King of the universe, the prophet, the manna, right here in the scriptures. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if someone comes back from the dead. 
Our prayer here is that you would know Jesus. Don't be like these people in Capernaum. More signs, more signs, more signs, more excuses. He is the bread of life. Come to offer up his life and give you everlasting life. Let's pray. Oh God, we're so thankful for your word, for the truth of your word, for the power of your word, for your spirit working through your word in our own hearts. We acknowledge you as the God of our salvation, the satisfier of our souls. And Lord, we're confident that this morning, if we're in Christ, we are safe and secure. We are in your hand. And you, as you promise, you will raise us up on the last day. Oh, Jesus, our hearts, they do hunger for you. And we recognize, especially this morning, that you and you alone are our soul's greatest desire. God, by your perfect life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension, we believe that you've taken the sting out of death, you've taken the gloom out of the grave, and you promise to glorify us with you. And so we thank you for that steadfast and sure hope, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.